It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. Hi, I'm Teresa. And I'm Amy. We are two ordinary moms looking for inspiration wherever we can find it. So, I mean, did you do anything fun last weekend or last week? Or Well, I thought it was fun plogging today. It that was, was fun. fun. It, was, it was wet. Yes. Super wet and rainy. But we, again, I just love the feedback yeah. we get from people on the, sh- you know, we had someone yelling at us <laughs> from afar, the thumbs up. Yeah. I don't know. It's just good to get some positive yeah. feedback. Even well, and from I was strangers. thinking as as we're running away, I was like, so all of these people probably think we're a little on the crazy side. They do. They probably think the loony birds are out collecting <laughs> their trash. It might change their day to, yeah. you know, who knows what decision they're going to make in changing somebody, you know, right. just helping other people. Exactly. I don't know. So, I, yeah. I, I'm but it was you. fun. It was fun. One of the amazing things about living in the United States is our national parks. Oh, yeah. We're, I mean, so, we're just so fortunate. We have sure. vast wilderness expanses, amazing views, animal refuges, and historical sites. At each of these parks, there are national park rangers who not only protect the museums, but protect and inform millions of people who go through our national parks each year. I'm going to tell you about one park ranger in particular, Betty Soskin. Park rangers, it's a hard job, and people are getting yeah rather difficult for them. So even more reason to admire them. But right, I'm sure because they you're for a while you're supposed to wear a mask yeah. when you're going through the parks. Well, I think that's I think lifted, in some but. in some areas it can be kind of dangerous because of people like doing things they're not supposed to be doing, right. and so you need to be nice to your park rangers. Betty Soskin works at the Rosie the Riveter. World oh. War II Homefront National Historical Park in Richmond, California. Wow. And, Amy, you, you know I love girl power. Yeah. And I love everything behind Rosie the Riveter, but Betty Soskin has changed my perspective a little bit. Yeah. This park that Betty works at has all kinds of displays from the home front of America during World War II. It focuses on the war effort that occurred in the United States while war raged in the Pacific and Europe. You can visit one of the enormous victory ships. These have large cargo ships built to replace the cargo ships sunk by Germany during the war, which were vital to supply troops and civilians in Europe. Other exhibits talk about how industry had to change to support the war effort and how a new workforce, mostly women, yeah, back here, had to step in and replace the men who were now off fighting the war. This is nine hours and okay. 21 minutes away from us. So I wow. think if we do a road trip next yeah. summer... We should go to this. So it's park. a park, but it has like a like a museum there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It looks kind of small, but worth, worth it. Yeah. Worth for it. sure. The iconic image of Rosie the Riveter, which I yeah. I can't get enough of. I mean, right. even when we were in Hawaii, my mom brought a bag back <laughs> for me. That's like I got I found you know Rosie the Riveter, but although not named until after the war. Um, it was that image was used to draw women into the war effort. Yeah, I've even seen pictures of the vet with the. At, I think it's at um, Rite Aid with her. Oh, uh-huh. With the, well, even when I was going through chemo. Yeah. Um, I, my family, I think my family gave me a, you know, shirt with a modified Rosie the River type of thing. It's just. Yeah. The, She's the, the icon of, yeah. of, of women's of strength. Power. Power, yes, yeah. exactly. 
So these women began working in factories and on military bases, assembling everything from planes to ships to support the war. What makes Betty Soskin different than many of the others in the park is that she actually lived through it. Wow. You see, Betty is the oldest National Park Ranger. She turned 100 last week on September 22nd, 2021. That's how I heard about this lady. World War II is not the only history Betty has lived through, nor has it been her only job. In fact, Betty was in her 80s when she started working for the national parks. Oh, so it's like a retirement job. I know, Good for her. Betty's just lived a pretty incredible life. She was born in 1921. She'd been a suburban mother, anti-war activist. Wow. Musician, business owner, faculty wife, community advocate, political aide, blogger. Wow. And a park She's ranger. like a renaissance woman. <laughs> no, She's really... And you see pictures of her, she's just, she reminds me so much of RBG. She's, well, yeah, she's, she's feisty and she's little, but she's just mighty. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) She reminds me so much of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She may be old, but she doesn't back down. She herself became an attraction at the park, not only for being the oldest national park ranger, but because of her history talks that give more of an unvarnished look at our history than you get in textbooks. Right, right. Benny had a rough time growing up. She was a light-skinned black woman that at times could pass for white. So it put her in limbo between both worlds. That reminded me of Colin Kaepernick, who was adopted by a white family. So he didn't really fit in with either community. She was often not accepted in the black community because she wasn't black enough. And she wasn't accepted in the white community because she wasn't white enough. She was born in Detroit but grew up in New Orleans. When her home was destroyed in the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927, she moved to California. She moved into a mixed-race neighborhood in Oakland. Her dad worked as a porter and as a waiter, and the family was part of a tight-knit Creole community, mostly transplants from Louisiana. Despite being stuck between the white and black communities, Betty had not experienced a lot of outright prejudice until World War II started. So at the beginning of the war, even before Pearl Harbor, America was starting to build up its defenses. Over 500,000 African Americans, mostly from the South, traveled to the West Coast for national defense-related jobs. Betty herself got a job in the U.S. Army Air Force Office, which was a great job. However, when she was up for a promotion, you're going to get riled with this, she realized that they thought she was white. She corrected that impression and found that she was no longer eligible to be promoted because she was black. So oh. as Betty put it, yeah. I walked out of the U.S. government and told them to shove it. So <laughs> her. I hope she said that exactly. <laughs> Those are, that's her quotes. So wow, that's um, pretty good. That's awesome. That part's good that she wasn't eligible. It's is not good. So, such an no, embarrassment. that's totally but wrong. Betty's husband, Mel, was also treated as a second-tier citizen by the military. Despite being a star college athlete and being willing to put his life on the line for his country, which many yeah. of these men and women did, the only position he could get in the Navy was that of a cook. So Betty went on to work as a file clerk in the segregated unit of an almost entirely white Boilermakers Union. The union would not allow full membership of blacks until much later. Betty's issue with the image of Rosie the Riveter, and this is what changed my whole perspective, is related to the icon being only a symbol of the jobs available to white women like Rosie. I I hadn't even thought thought about about it. Yeah, Black women were not given those types of jobs. 
Blacks in general were given the dirtiest, most dangerous jobs in factories. They weren't building ships or riveting wings onto planes. They worked the worst factory jobs. Betty vividly remembers an explosion at the Port Chicago where munitions went off accidentally, killing 320 people. The explosion was big enough it could be seen 25 miles away. Whoa. More than two-thirds of the people who died in that explosion were black workers assigned to that job because of it being dangerous. So even the bodies from that explosion were buried in segregated military graveyards. She and her husband had to buy land through a white friend because people wouldn't sell the blacks. They received threats from neighbors as a result. The local elementary school organized a fundraiser that included a black face number with both students and staff. Betty confronted the school principal, who let the show continue. Betty sat in the front row and cried the entire time, which would totally be me. These experiences led her towards social justice efforts after the war. Through the Unitarian Church, she participated in anti-war protests, raised money for the Black Panthers, and worked for politicians who were supportive of change. She said, I became an activist simply because of who I was. Music was an important outlet for her. She learned to play the guitar and sing, and her music often conveyed pro-black themes. She and her husband even made a successful business out of selling race records. Oh. Out of a cut, out of their garage door. This was just historically black music that couldn't be sold in other stores, so they did it kind of on the side, you know, with this hole in the wall in their garage. Betty became a community advocate, pushing for new housing for African Americans and other efforts to improve black neighborhoods. She got a job with a state legislator and pushed for progress for black communities. It was while she was working with the state legislator that she came in contact for the first time with the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historical Park. That's a mouthful. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) In 2000, as a field representative for a California state legislator, she was asked to sit on the planning for this new national park just outside of San Francisco. At the very first meeting, she blurted out that she had a love-hate relationship with Rosie the Riveter. That was only the first thing she blurted out. She got on a roll and explained how the history to the committee was putting forth was only part of the history. Oh, good Marginalized. For her. I know. That's awesome. Marginalized communities, including African Americans, New Mexican Native Americans, Japanese Americans, Mexican Americans, were all part of the history of the home front, and they weren't being represented. So she said, what gets remembered depends on who is in the room doing the remembering. She pointed out that Rosie the Riveter history was only one of the histories that needed to be remembered. She pushed for a broader view of history that included both the humongous sacrifice of women on the home front, but also the sacrifice of other groups that are often forgotten. These stories are now being told, not just by Betty. Who tells these stories to the tens of thousands of tourists she meets each year, right. but through exhibits and other materials that were pushed by Betty. Oh, good. They were added later? or Yeah. So since Betty had a stroke in 2019, most of Betty's work as a park ranger has been telling these stories through video conferencing. Okay. But at least she's yeah. ensuring these stories continue told. to be told. Betty's been on Anderson Cooper's show, photographed by Annie Leibovitz, and has been honored by President Obama. She's even been in a commercial for North Face. I need to look that up. Oh, wow, that's cool. That's adorable. Betty Soskin is just so inspiring, making a difference even at 100. She had a difficult life, and yet she's still so spirited. Yeah, that's so awesome. I mean, she's fine to be to kind of a goal. Absolutely. Yeah. To aspire to. Exactly. She's five foot three, so a petite little thing. Yeah. She's a great grandma, and she's still out there dropping truth bombs. 
She said that if there's one thing she wants her great-grandchildren to remember about her is that Grandma Betty always told the truth. Aww. Which, love, love, love. You gave me the book Following Atticus by Tom Ryan a few months ago for my girls to I read. Think just because I saw the dog on the couch. Yeah, I think because we <laughs> we just got a mini schnauzer a few months ago. Her name's Fritz. And I have to say we adore her, and she's been a huge blessing to our family. But So this book immediately resonated with me when I started reading. I just loved it. It's an awesome story about a man, Tom Ryan, who... His life's really transformed by his relationship with his schnauzer, Atticus. The adventures they have together hiking the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Tom grew up in Midway, Massachusetts, the youngest of nine kids. Oh, a, yeah, a lot of kids. His mother had a rough go. She was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis before Tom was born. Hmm. And Tom's mom was in a serious car accident and was hospitalized. While in the hospital, she dropped a cigarette in her bed and was severely At burnt. the hospital? At the hospital. Now, this was probably, he's older than us, so mm-hmm. this is probably the 70s, and you could smoke mm-hmm. in the hospital Oh, my then. gosh. And so she died a, a week later. Mm-hmm. He, Tom was about seven at the time. And this was just catastrophic for oh, Tom sure. and his family. Tom's dad, Jack, was never the same after her death, and he just became hardened and really distant from his children. He was often angry with his kids and believed in corporal punishment. As a result, most mm. of the siblings moved away from Medway yeah. as soon as they could. And Tom was the youngest. So when he it was his turn, he moved uh, 90 minutes away into Newburyport. They probably just wanted to escape. Yeah. Yeah. He described Newburyport kind of like a Norman Rockwell painting, mm. quaint, mm-hmm. kind of small town. And he started a newspaper, the Undertoad, or he called it the Toad. <laughs> It was first free, and then he started to get subscriptions, and then it was in newsstands all over town. He was really involved in the community. So he wrote about local community, politics, residents, businesses. He knew everybody mm-hmm. and their business, too. He was heavily involved in the town. He attended council meetings. He knew the police. He ate at all the restaurants. You know, he just was really involved. And then one day he got an email from someone wanting to advertise an old mini schnauzer that needed a home. And he thought about it and wrote back, well, if no one else takes them, he would take the dog. Well, the next day. Of course, it's going to be his. The next day, he's taking the dog, leash and collar in hand. He went to pick up the mini schnauzer. His name was Max. And Tom said when he first met Max, he looked more like a sheep. They really have, Mm. they have a double coat. So they're kind of can be really full and furry. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he took him home and got him a haircut and really transformed him. So they have, him. They have a double coat, but aren't they're, they, they they're hyperallergenic? Yeah. yeah, but it's like this double, I don't know. Like our skipper, he had the, you know, like a lion's mane on the outside and then kind of like furry. Fur, yeah. and it's inside, it can so. get really matted. Mm-hmm. I know, like when I bathe Fritz, like it beads off like a coat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like I really have to get in there, but... So after he got this haircut, it really transformed him and changed his name to Maxwell Garrison Gillis. <laughs> he felt that was more fitting. And he Tom picked those names because Garrison and Gillis were to honor former independent newspaper men mm. in their town. Just sounds so fancy. It's so fancy. I thought it was cute. It's such a grand-sounding name. My sister-in-law's dog, well, and my brother, too, has... Um, their dog's name is Bentley. Oh, that's So they a- named all their dogs after cars. Oh, that's yeah. fun. So Maxwell's known and well-liked by everyone in town. I mean, it was common for shop owners to give him treats. 
Maxwell Garrison Gillis changed Tom's life and made a huge impression on the town, but unfortunately passed away after only a year and a half. I just love, Tom wrote, uh, during the time we spent together, he not only found a home, but he also gave me one. That Mm -hmm. was something I hadn't counted on. When I rescued him, I didn't realize that I was taking the steps toward rescuing myself. And then he wrote this cute thing in the paper. He said, uh, Newburyport lost a good dog today. We'll never forget you, Maxwell Garrison Gillis. Newburyport was better because of you, Max. Mm. So going to make me cry. I know. So after losing Max, Tom decided he wanted to find another mini schnauzer and started working with a breeder in uh, Louisiana, Paige. Paige emailed him a ton of photos, like tons of pictures from her litter. Tom was picky, and it took him a while until finally she sent a picture of one with unusual markings, black all over with white markings on the chest and legs and a white beard and white <laughs> eyebrows. Sounds kind of R- like really um, cute. Hello. Just a very expressive face. Yeah, I think that's what he was looking for. He named the puppy Atticus mm. M for Maxwell and Finch. <laughs> and, yes, it's a nod to the attorney in The Kill a Mockingbird. That's an awesome book. Yeah. I, want, I was thinking I need to reread that book. but So he phoned Paige a ton early on, you know, asking advice. And this is really sweet. She suggested he carry Atticus around for the first two months. So they'll bond together. <laughs> like, it's almost like a baby and a mom. I was thinking, I just, it was really funny. But Tom eventually had to create some space. <laughs> to have a life. To have a life. So at first he would park his car, like if he's going out to dinner, so he could keep a watchful eye <laughs> on Atticus. The one time Atticus had an accident in the car, he didn't. He had went number two and rolled all over oh. it. And so Tom had to ran out to care of the mess, and I think that's so gross. But yeah. and I guess he phoned Paige for advice, and she suggested a crate would be probably in order. So wouldn't you know it? <laughs> he did the same thing in the crate a couple times, which surprises me. It surprises me too. Like to make a mess. They in their, don't like to yeah. make a mess in the crate, which I thought yeah. that was interesting. But finally, Tom had a talk with Atticus. He's so matter of fact <laughs> that he he told him he was about to leave. He gave him a biscuit and he said he'd be back. And when Tom returned, Atticus hadn't moved, nor did he eat the biscuit. And I love this page because she's got the southern accent. She'd say, "Well, y'all work it out." And so they did. Atticus, like Max, was loved by Newburyport. Tom took him everywhere. He did business. Uh, in the process of taking care of Atticus, I just love reading this, that Tom took better care of himself. They, Which is very common yeah, with, with dog owners. With dog owners. Yeah. It makes you do more. Like we are. I mean, they, they started taking walks, and then the walks became longer walks. Tom changed his eating habits. <laughs> and he, he started following the South Beach diet, and I guess he lost mm. weight. And to not, keep up with Atticus. And keep up with Atticus. Yeah, not only was he making, you know, changes to his health, he reunited with his three of his brothers that he hadn't seen. Mm. And they decided to hike Mount Garfield in New Hampshire, which is part of the White Mountains. And, of course, Atticus came along, too. Don described this experience as sort of a homecoming. The White Mountains were part of his past. The brothers considered them to be the, his father's mountains, their mm. father's mountains. Their father would take them on vacations, camp along the streams, and his dad would quote like famous writers like Nathaniel Hawthorne, Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson. They wrote about the White Mountains. So, then it really, so the dad talked about the dad it. talked about that. Yeah, and, and yet t- he was a big spanker. He was. He, yeah, he was. Just he, had lo- he had a love. Those. He had a love for literature mm-hmm. and a love for you know nature. Mm-hmm. But I think he there was definitely a heart inside yeah. to him. 
I, that just was interesting to me yeah. because those authors they're kind of opposite. Yeah. yeah, and Tom in throughout this book is quotes all those authors too. And it's it was sad to read that Tom had left those mountains behind in his childhood, but his brothers hadn't. Even after they left home, they continued to hike and enjoy the beauty all this time. Mm-hmm. That hike with the brothers really reconnected the family. It sparked a hiking bug in Tom and showed him that Atticus would make a great hiking companion. So after that, Tom wanted to complete the 4,000-footer club, which is 48 hikes of 4,000-foot mountains in the New Hampshire White Mountain National Forest. I checked out the website. It's pretty impressive. It's a huge accomplishment for a human, let alone a dog. (laughs) I mean, roughly, if, if you complete it all, it's roughly like 450 miles. Oh, my gosh. And they're little legs. And they're little because, I mean, we, you know, we have, they're not small dogs, mm-hmm. but they're not big dogs they're, either. Know, and the other interesting thing is most of them, you're hiking about four, up to 4,000 feet, but some up to 6,281, wow. I think, was the highest, and that's mm-hmm. Mount Washington. So, anyways, it takes most hikers like a couple of years or even decades to complete hmm. this. There's rules and there's permits required. So this isn't for the faint of heart. I love that Tom wrote that this was something, as they were doing these hikes, something was happening between the two of them, him and Atticus, by being in the mountains. He Mm -hmm. talks about hiking as therapeutic, almost cathartic, Mm -hmm. really a kind of a spiritual journey. That sounds really incredible. He describes the beauty of the mountains as looking in the face of God. I just love that. And Atticus is always in the lead, you know, 20 feet ahead, walking at a steady (laughs) pace. I'd be worried he'd be a snack. I know, for the bears. I mean, and Tom would often, like, sometimes come around the bend, and Atticus would be, you know, up on a ledge, off, you know, looking off in the distance. like Making sure they're okay. Yeah, and it just, it describes, <laughs> the way he described it, it's so zen-like. Tom actually nicknamed him Little Buddha. Oh. Um, and often, you know, fellow hikers would be surprised to see Atticus, this dog, schnauzer, and then middle-aged <laughs> yes. Tom, and they'd go, how did you guys get up here? And they're like, we walked. <laughs> I just love that. They ended up finishing all 48 hikes in wow. that one summer, which I think is pretty impressive. I and wonder you, if he was inspired by Grandma Gatewood. I have no idea. I just think they maybe he was inspired to do it and well, just yeah. did it. But I mean, more his dad's age with, yeah, with that. that side of the country. So there's a t-shirt you can get that will list all the 48 peaks. And it was really sweet. He bought one and gave it to his dad, which I thought was Aww. a nice gesture. So he's still keeping in touch with his father, but they didn't speak super frequently. After the summer ended and fall rolled in, Tom and Atticus decided to do the 48 Peaks again in the winter. So they got... It's miserable. I know. They got all the gear, crampons, cold weather clothing for Tom, and a full body suit for Atticus <laughs> and Mutlux. It's pretty cute. It's on the cover of the book. But I laugh because Tom described putting that suit on Atticus, and he just stood there like a stuffed dog, which... <laughs> Probably wondering, what the heck are you I doing? I know. Well, we put... Uh, girls like to put outfits on, yeah. Fritz, or we have a Halloween costume, and she just stands there frozen, <laughs> you know, like... We got a banana for Kylo. Oh, and we fun. put it on. Yeah. But he, he wants to eat it. Oh, yeah. It's like a stuff. It's something to chew. Yeah. yeah. They like so to chew. He's like, he's not into it. Yeah. He will not be excited for Halloween. Oh, it's cute. But he'll be cute. Yeah. So fellow hikers warned them that hiking the winter is really different. The trail looks different. The trailhead markers can often be covered by snow. Plus, you don't have as much daylight. But that didn't stop them. I was amazed to read about the winds. One time during that winter, Mount Washington recorded the highest wind measured at 231 miles per hour. Wow. Yeah, something you'd expect to find in Antarctica, not New Hampshire. Of course, they didn't hike that day, but I just thought that was really amazing. No. 
Tom wrote about sometimes that they would be hiking and see no one. And, you know, I just, it sounds kind of barren, not seeing anybody. Mm-hmm. And the conditions were pretty unbearable. I um, would not like that. Yeah. Often starting your hike in the dark in the morning and ending it, in, you know, in the dark as well. I can't imagine with the headlamps. I'm such a chicken. No. But he's funny. He'd focus on the pleasures of home, thinking about the hot cocoa, the hot bath, the book. I just, you know, whatever to keep you going. Um, home is a long way. Is a long way. It's not just at the cabin that no. he's in the woods. It's, no. But I think it was a lot of. I think that was a lot of solace, and he yeah. was really thinking about his life. And he also looked at Atticus for inspiration because of his strength and confidence. Each climb, he just kept going. The little guy. Little guy. Yeah. During this time, he often thought about his father and his love of the mountains. And although Tom kept in touch with Paige, you know, keep in touch with Paige, he'd tell him about his adventures. And he also started writing a column, a letter to my father, which I thought was really cool. It allowed people to see more of an intimate view of him, to get to know Tom and his father. And it's kind of a bridge to their relationship, too, a way to communicate and let him know what he was up to. They didn't quite finish all the peaks that winter. I think I can't remember how many they were shy, but... Shortly after uh, all that winter hiking, he got a call from a good friend, Vicky, who was in the hospital. Atticus and Tom went to see her and found out she was dying. Vicky loved Atticus. And so she would insist on eating only at restaurants that Tom could bring Atticus <laughs> in. And there was a couple in this town that Atticus could come oh, eat right hilarious. at the table. And she called Atticus her nephew, Addie. <laughs> and so after Vicky died, Tom wanted to honor her in some way. So he decided to climb the hike, those 48 peaks in the winter. Oh, my gosh. He wanted to do it twice. So we're talking 96 peaks to raise money for the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, which is a huge cancer research hospital in Boston, Mass., and then the Jimmy Fund. The Jimmy Fund has been raising money for cancer research uh, since 1948. And they called it their their winter quest for a cure. And they That's had cool. 90 days to accomplish this endeavor. So there's like beginning and ending times that you can, you're supposed to hike within. So mm-hmm. during the summer, part of that summer, they did some, you know, really long hikes, anywhere from 18 to 24 miles just to kind of try to get in shape. I think we should do something like I this. I know. It's pretty cool. During this training, Tom started to feel tired and flu-like. He thought he might have Lyme disease, so he sought the help of a doctor who gave him medication and vitamin supplements, which i that's a pretty devastating mm-hmm. thing to have to kind of battle, but he forced on Lyme disease be damned. I mean, he did. So he did have it. He, he did have it, and so he just, you know, he had good days and bad days. Mm-hmm. He created a blog to record their adventures and let readers keep up with their progress, and so each peak, they dedicated it to the donor that either knew someone that was beating cancer or beat it or someone who died. And Tom would pick up Atticus on every summit at the top of the peak and say the name of that person. And they would say a prayer. The hiking sounded grueling between the cold temperature and often single digits, you know, and snowy. But, you know, he wrote how inspired he was. Again, watching Atticus push the snow drift (laughs) into the climbing and I, I thought it was neat, too, though, but Tom would never force Atticus to hike. I mean, but Atticus would, must have thought he was crazy. Yeah, well, they, really? they'd get there, and if he didn't want to get out of the car, if he was tired, yeah, he he'd let him stay in yeah. the car. Which I, you know, And he was careful about checking conditions mm-hmm. to make sure it was safe. But by this time, they were becoming local celebrities. Fellow hikers <laughs> would ask to take their picture with them. Um, they were receiving emails from fellow hikers. One person wrote, they can't wait to meet the little giant, which... It's, I think, a super fitting name for all the accomplishments of this little dog. 
you know, as I read this dog, I kept looking over at my <laughs> Fritz and wondering, what are you capable of? And as soon as I daydream, I could see her give, she always gives me the side eye, like, <laughs> no way. Stop. No way. <laughs> but the, unfortunately for them, the weather got the better of Tom and Atticus, and they felt short of their climbing goal. They did 81 instead of the 96 peaks, Oh, my gosh. Which still, is still, yeah, I mean, they, they, they're doing, like, multiple hikes a day. Like, sometimes it's three hikes a day. I'm just so impressed. 81 more than than most of us. Yeah. Another cool thing is at the end of all of this, his Lyme disease symptoms were gone. So that was oh. pretty amazing just reading that. Mm-hmm. But they raised money for a great cause and honored a friend, I think, in the process, which is really awesome. After settling back in Newburyport, Tom knows something was off with Atticus. He was staying really close to Tom and sometimes pressing his nose on his leg. So he took him to the vet. And after the vet examined him and did blood work, it determined Atticus had um, cataracts in both eyes. And due to high white blood count, possible thyroid cancer. And Tom was beyond devastated. And he kept, Tom was worried. He he kept asking the doctors, is this because of the hiking and the harsh conditions, you know, the sun Mm -hmm. and the blinding snow? And the vet says, no, it just happens to some dogs. And then a Tibetan monk was visiting Newburyport. So Tom, desperate, <laughs> took Tom, took Atticus to see him, hoping for a miracle. No. I guess the, the the monk had a kind face and was gentle. And as he spoke to Atticus, Atticus seemed to understand every word. But Aww. maybe it worked. I don't know. But amazingly, 24 hours later, the vet looking for Atticus tumors, they couldn't find any. So Tom was overjoyed. So I know. And so now he's just got to worry about the cataracts. So Mm -hmm. he's asking where, you know, the best place to take them. And they suggested this Angel Animal Medical Center. Tom liked that name because it had the angel Mm -hmm. word in there. And so initially the vet at Angel Medical Center gave him some ointment for his surgery. But it's really sweet the way he described taking care of Atticus like when he was a young pup, just really keeping him close. And then he asked the vet after the surgery, because Atticus had to spend the night, could he stay over and sleep with them? (laughs) And they said yes. So I just thought that was really sweet. So after the surgery success, Tom was stressed because he... He didn't have the funds to pay for the surgery because mm-hmm. he'd spent, he kind of let his newspaper go mm-hmm. during his quest, his winter <laughs> quest for cure. But it got, word got out. And it's really, really sweet. A young girl even sent like a note, handwritten note with tape coins to help oh, pay. Adorable. I know. And a local Italian restaurant donated a night's earnings to Atticus. It was really cool. I just love how people came together to help. In the end, he was able to pay for the surgery. And then after that, I think he kind of re- reevaluated his what was important to him, and he decided to sell his paper and move closer to the mountains out in Lincoln. And so that winter, they decided to do it again. Oh my gosh! <laughs> this time to de- you know, dedicated to the Angel Animal Center. Mm-hmm. So the, at this time, at the top of each summit, they would say the name of someone's beloved pet. Oh, that's adorable. Either living or departed. And folks would, you know, usually we would need to do send this. a check to. They would send a check in, and they sometimes would send a photo and the, the mm-hmm. pet story. So after reaching the top, top, Tom would post the photo of the pet being de- dedicated on his mm-hmm. blog. I just love that. It's Me just too. so cool. And I just, I think it's so awesome how he raised money to honor his friend while doing something he and Atticus love, which is mm-hmm. hiking, and then did it again for. Um, the, you know, after Atticus, well, I think we keep we're seeing it time and time again. Yeah. People with where they're at, they're making a difference. Making the difference. No. Yeah. 
I just, this book is awesome. And it's, there's so much more to it. I just, you know, we only have so much time, but it just warmed my heart. And I just loved Tom and Atticus' relationship. The pets are way more than companions. They're family. I keep asking myself why it took us so long to get a dog. I don't know. But it was just neat to read about how it transformed Tom, you know, physically Mm -hmm. and spiritually. Mm -hmm. For the better. For the better. He lost 75 pounds. He also was afraid of heights. So he overcame Mm. his fear of heights. And then through all of this, reconnected with his family, you know, especially his dad, through this passion of of hiking and writing about his column, uh, Letter to Dad. Because he probably needed to get that stuff out. Right. But they probably didn't have a healthy enough relationship, relationship to have to, a conversation. Yeah. So but it this, was a very cathartic way yeah, to write about yeah. it. And then his dad, it was a way to kind of both come together. Very smart. Yeah, in a way. And it just, I love reading about Tom's experience with nature and the beauty, the serenity offer. It just makes me want to go hiking. Well, I def- I love the idea of, like, for a charity, then them holding, you know, yeah. a picture of the pet and then that check going to that. For right. Us, it would be Deb Lewis. Right. Because that's our area. Yeah. But, um, I just think this, yeah, what a neat guy. Yeah, I just, it was really, really. And, of course, super neat, cute pet. Yeah, <laughs> I know. But you know I'm I blown dogs, away. So. I'm blown away by the little dog. <laughs> if you live to be 100, I want to live to be 100, 100 minus one day so I never have to live without you. Pooh's little instruction book. I heard about this really cool nonprofit in New York City, the Billion Oyster Project. It was founded in 2014 by Murray Fisher and Pete Malinowski. They met at this Urban Assembly New York Harbor School. So this, hmm, yeah, it's really cool. This Harbor School opened in 2003 as a, as a result of low graduation rates. So this school offers students some studies in maritime subjects, oh. so something a little different. Mm-hmm. They learn about local waterways, including the New York Harbor, Hudson River. Did you see that story about that woman that's 100 and still out lobster, oh. like hunting lobsters? Wow, no, I didn't. With her 78-year-old son. She's over oh 100. Oh, my gosh. She's still going out every day in the Boston area. And that's awesome. Catching lobsters. Yeah. That's this cool. Re- this reminded me of that. Yeah. Yeah, so since opening the school uh, and Pete, they wanted to make an impact on the New York Harbor and opportunity to learn about New York's rich oyster history, which I didn't know anything about. New York Harbor was once home to 220,000 acres of oyster reefs. Oysters have been a draw to visitors even prior to the 20th century, as far back as 1600s. In 1750, they had... Do you like oysters? I don't. Yeah. I'm not a real I, I did fan. the Newport Marathon, and they had, like, oyster shooters oh, yeah. at mile eight. And they're, they're, they're people, big delicatessen. Yeah, they're yeah. a big, yeah. It was a draw for that right, that yeah. run, but to me, I'm, mm, no, no. But Well, it, be, it becomes such an issue. In 1715, they had to put a ban to put a limit on oyster harvesting from New York City reefs in the spring and summer to allow for this break to replenish I'm impressed that they did back, back in this then. time. Yeah. This is it's kind of interesting. So yeah. Then in 1807 the ban was suspended and and then in, by 1849 the industry started uh, dumping pollutants into the waterways. They started using raw sewage mm. was coming into the the harbor. So by 1906 New York Harbor was lifeless. By 1927 the last commercial oyster bed closed. Hmm. So it's really sad. Yeah. Fortunately, in 1972, the Clear Water Act prohibited waste being dumped in the harbor. So that was good. But by 2000, the health 
for the harbor so and far proved, down the road, though, yeah. from 1927. Yeah, but it's it's amazing to me that that far back. I yeah. mean, but so by 2010, the first whale was seen in over a hundred years in the harbor, which is really that's huge. It's huge. Yeah. So you're probably going, what's what is what is all about this and oysters? Well. Oysters are important because they grow off one another to create these reefs mm-hmm. and to attract and provide a healthy environment. Just ecosystem in for, general. Yeah, yeah, for marine life. And they're prolific filters as adult oysters. They can filter up to 50 gallons of water a day. Wow. And removing pollutants like nitrogen. Mm-hmm. And this is super important to marine ecosystems because the excess of nitrogen triggers algal blooms that deplete the water mm-hmm. of oxygen mm-hmm. and create those dead zones. Mm-hmm. So, and additionally, these massive oyster reef systems in New York were once natural defense systems against storm damage. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. another yeah, another thing, yeah. yeah. The reefs would soften the blow of large waves, reducing flooding and preventing erosion, which mm-hmm. is really amazing. So part of this project is to reclaim oyster shells, clam and scallop shells, to use them to start new reefs. They These shells provide a hard surface and a rich calcium kind of carbonate that is perfect for oysters to kind of settle on. And then they kind of build and build mm-hmm. and grow. Mm-hmm. As a result of New York's long-lasting, they love oysters, so their shells are plentiful uh, local resource. In 2015, the Billion Oyster Project started a shell collection program, giving restaurants an opportunity not only to divert shells from landfills, which I know they're biodegradable, but they you can reclaim these. They're valuable resource for the restoration of these the future oyster up, yeah. reefs, which I, I think is kind of fascinating. The shells are uh, dumped in a occurring site and exposed to wind, rain, insects for a year until they're clean enough to re-enter into the. Have you seen New the ones Harbor. by Tillamook? Yeah, like, yeah. I wonder if that's, that's the what same they're doing. Okay. The same kind of okay. thing. Yeah. They've collected so far 1.6 million pounds of recycled shell. Wow. They've installed 13 oyster reefs across the New York Harbor. They've now have over uh, 47 million live oysters have been restored. That's so awesome. I know. I was just fascinated by this nonprofit. It's just so awesome. And I love the learning aspect. Mm-hmm. I think there's like 8,000 volunteers involved. I love that, that students are involved in this and restaurants. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just really All cool. All in it together. Yeah. That's so awesome. Yeah. I love these questions as we get to know <laughs> each other better. So, uh, Teresa, what is your favorite season? I'd have to say it's a toss-up between summer, love summer. Yeah, I can see that. Warm and nice, yeah. And fall, I love new routine, you know, getting routines in order and schedules and all of that. So toss-up between summer and fall. Yeah, I I totally get that. What's your favorite zoo animal? So not the giraffe. (laughs) (laughs) Not the giraffe. Not the elephant, although I've, you know, learned that they are such great creatures. Right. Um, they're just so stinky at the zoo. Yeah, that's but the true. the little otters oh, that are there cute. are yeah. adorable, right. and they're just like on, they're yes, on their back. On the yeah, back and they're just take good care of their kids. They're just cute. Yeah, yeah. sweet. And what's the most daring thing you've ever done? This is really sad because I definitely have not ridden an elephant in Thailand. I honestly think the most daring thing I've done is either like ziplining or 
That's scary. Yeah. Um, on our own, we teased about, I don't know if you saw the movie with Meryl Streep with, um, her na- nickname was Whitewater. So for oh. a bunch of years, yeah. I was like, that was my nick. I was teasing about yeah. that being my nickname. <laughs> that's serious. That's daring. Well, that's like, daring, yeah. though. I'm all about being safe and careful. A little too much. Yeah. Oh, well, no, that's yeah. fun. What's your favorite type of foreign food? I have to say probably, well, I love the salad rolls. Oh, and, yeah. Um, Siam Lotus. And Those are so good. Probably, and Pad Thai. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely um, Thai. Yeah. Yum. For now. Is there anything you wish would come back in fashion? I'm so excited that you mentioned the Famalaris. I can't wait <laughs> I know, to talk so to my dorky. mom about those. But I... I want like gloves oh, and yeah. hats. Yeah. And so today I was having my eyebrows started and right. my lady was all like, have you ever thought about a Brazilian blowout? Because it would get rid of this frizz. So I was oh, like, well, if I, I know. I like so your I'm wave. Like, that's, so I'm like, I. That's not good for your hair, the Brazilian. Well, that's what yeah. I looked into. Yeah. And my hair lady would freak out about that. Right. So I just was like, maybe hats need to come in style so that I, I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. Aww. So I'd say hats and gloves, like yeah, you know, fun. back in the back in the back in the day with the theater and stuff. I just uh, the the glamour. Yeah, I think that'd be. Fun. I like that. Thousands of tired, nerve shaken, over civilized people are beginning to find out that going to the mountains is going home. That the wilderness is a necessity and that a mountain parks and reservations are useful not only as fountains of timber and irrigating rivers, but as fountains of life. John Muir. Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com or leave a comment on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories, follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week.